Welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. I'm Andy Crouch. This week we continue our conversation with beer writer Joe Stang. If you missed part one of our discussion, I recommend you go back and give it a listen. But before we get started, the Beer Edge Podcast is brought to you by Arrived. When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, your focus is on superb service and delicious beer. Point of sale is just a transactional formality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the only mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system designed specifically for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity. Your managers will love the world class support team. Your guests will love the seamless ordering experience and probably order more beer because of it. Save time, money, and headaches with Arrived. In our most recent episode, I hosted a longtime friend and fellow beer writer, Joe Stang who told us about moving his family to Thailand in the middle of a pandemic, the importance of traditional styles, and the future of the American beer bar. In this episode, we continue our discussion, moving on to his somewhat unexpected defense of hazy IPAs, his thoughts on why the Stone Berlin project failed, and whether lager will finally have its day. It's hard to capture the essence of a writer in a spoken word podcast, but I've done my best in these two interviews hoping to do justice to Joe and his work. If you've enjoyed listening to Joe and his thoughts about beer, I'd highly recommend you check out his entirely too short-lived podcast, One More Road for the Beer, which he co-hosted with fellow beer and travel writer Zach Johnston. It only lasted for 10 episodes, but it was glorious, and we talked a bit about it and whether it might one day return. Here's the second half of my conversation with beer writer Joe Stang. Do you think style has a place in the modern modern beer world? It's shorthand, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's, it's useful as long as you don't take it too seriously. I think you, the trick, we, and of course this happens all the time, somebody will learn about beer through um, a home brewing competition guidelines or something. That's the wrong way to learn about beer. Go to the, go to the store, go to the bar. That's how to learn about beer. Even better, you know, it's a, it's a, a luxury if you can afford it, but to travel, that's the best, you know, that's the best way to learn about where beer, where it's from. Um, but to study guidelines and try to copy guidelines and, and things I think is really boring. And um, I, uh, I get it from a technical standpoint. I appreciate the challenge of trying to do that, but I think you need to go out and find the real stuff and get to know it that way. Um, and th- in that sense, to communicate with each other about what we're tasting, what we like, what we don't like. Styles are really useful. Mm -hmm. You know, you walk into a bar and you see a, the names are getting very, you know, they have to get creative these days. If if it doesn't say stout, I don't, I don't, you know, like you have to tell me what, at least what kind of beer you think it is. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, it's, you get beers that are like the illusion of happiness once, once remembered. And you're like, I, I don't know, is that going to be sour? What it, you know, what it, what is this going to be? And you're like, oh, well, that's your Kolsch. Cool. Okay. That's great. Like, you have written in your career quite a bit and certainly recently about Cezanne. And I think, you know, we maybe have discussed this in the past. I feel like everything, every time I read about Cezanne, every time I drink Cezanne, every time I spend any time with Cezanne, I feel like I understand it less and less. I, whether it's origin story or just what it's supposed to be or what it's not supposed to be, 
I just, it, it's one of those styles that I just could never get a handle on. And maybe it's because it's not meant to be handled, but I'm just curious for someone who has thought so much about it. What is your, impre- what is Cezanne? What is your impression of it? Is, what is the soul of it? What is it s- supposed to be? Or what is it not supposed to be? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's probably a made up story, right? So I think that's important to, from the outset, like it's a story. So um, I don't know that there are any wrong answers in Saison. And the only right answer is it needs to be, it needs to be really drinkable. Um, other than that, there's so much room for interpretation. Um, there's been interesting research that's come out, not, I mean, it's, you know, come out, I say, people who, who know how to read original sources in French and, um, and look for, know where to find them, you know, have found references to beers called Cezanne and Liège um, earlier than, than it was used in, in Wallonia, which is where we use that word really, you know, particularly around Wallonia for, for that farmhouse brewing tradition, which is a lot of that tradition is oral. It wasn't recorded. There weren't re- researchers and, you know, you weren't going to find those beers in necessarily in the big cities. So there's a lot, there's a lot we don't know. And there's also, we're sort of leaning as a crutch on this inherited mythology. We don't know how true it is. And I'm, I'm not sure to what extent it really matters. Um, the idea of farms brewing beer for their farmhands was real. That was, in fact, that was real in more places than Wallonia. That was, you know, that was a, a common thing. The, the beers that we mean when we're talking about Cezanne are the ones that sort of survived the modern era in Belgium, Cezanne Dupont and a couple of others, and then imitators after that. Really just a couple of yeast strains um, where there probably before were, who knows how many, um, environmentally driven so I, and now that with this, um, with uh, Lars Marius Garshall doing this research in Northern Europe uh, on those farmhouse brewing traditions, I mean, farmhouse used to be almost synonymous with the Belgian French tradition for, for us. And now it's like, well, that's stupid. That's like, that's why would you, why, why would you even think that now in retrospect, right? Because obviously you can grow beer ingredients in other parts of Europe and obviously they would have brewed with them. So um, in, in Germany too, I think there's, I'm convinced there's a whole farmhouse brewing tradition that wasn't documented and that we don't, that is lost. So, um, where are we going to that? The reason I love to drink Cezanne is because the, the wide difference in character, but also when I get a really good one to me, that's just transcendent. It's, I like the dryness. I like it when it's hoppy. I like it when I can taste the, the malt too, but not sweet. Um, and uh, I like when the expressive yeast, the spicier yeast is in balance with the hops and not overtaking it. Should up to me is Saison, a great Saison to me is hoppy um, with aroma and, and it should be bitter. Um, that's my taste, but given how vague, you know, the, <laughs> the, the whole thing is like, how can I, how can you possibly tell anybody else what's right or wrong for Saison? I just don't, you know not into that. I just make it how I like it. <laughs> um, yeah. Cezanne. I don't know, man. I just, I just, it's one of those, I, I feel like the longer I've been at this, the less I know 
which I think is something maybe Lou Bryson said about beer years ago. Um, but it just, you know, same thing about Kolsch. I just feel like every time I have a Kolsch, it just resets everything and I just don't remember anything. So I feel like it, maybe it's just the absence of travel for a while now. Cause I, I like you very much prefer to enjoy beer in sort of the space where it's made or the space where it's from not divorced sent, you know, halfway around the world necessarily. I, I, my favorite beer memories are always ones where I'm either with the brewer or producer or just people who love it in or around where, where it's from um, and where it's sort of meant to be enjoyed. Uh, but it just, the absence of being able to, to go to Cologne or be able to spend time in Brussels or Germany, just, I feel like I'm losing my connection to some of these things and I'm getting lost in a world of, you know, hazy IPA, you know, which is something I'm also sort of setting my sights on is spending. I've been a hazy critic for quite some time. I'm someone who enjoys some bitterness in my beer and the, you know, sweet wash of, of a lot of hazy is not to my particular palate. Um, but I'm, kind of, you know, living in a place where hazy ostensibly started or hazy IPAs ostensibly started, or at least had a, a long route. I'm kind of trying to delve back into it a little bit more to try to maybe, you know, to try to always see what I've missed and, and try to try to get back to it. But, you know, the lack of travel is, is sort of killing me for that. You know, the lack of being able to go to these places and try these more traditional styles is sort of leaving me, well, I guess it's hazy. I'm in New England. I can drive there. You know, hazy is what I, I guess I get to focus on for the next year or so. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm, um, what's something that's helped me to appreciate the hazy IPAs is the sort of wishy-washy in between hazy West Coast IPAs because I, I love a good bitter West Coast IPA, full stop. Like I, I, I just, yeah, I, I'm into that, and especially because they're getting more rare, like, or the American IPA or whatever we're going to call it. I, right, the, right. The, nomen, the nomenclature's gotten confusing. Um, so there's more of these hybrid IPAs now where they call it West Coast, but it's hazy or it's clear, but it's kind of sweet and soft, or it's just something between or they just call it an ipa and it turns out eh, it's kind of bitter but it's kind of yeah. sweet and kind of yeah and um i feel like those beers are not only taking away what's fun about west coast ipa or bright and bitter ipa yeah. but it's also taking away what's fun about hazy IPA. right like right. that sweet juicy that sweet juiciness that you know it's for the sweet tooth i think and, and yeah. um and it's definitely you get incredible flavors out of that and, and incredibly complex aromas that, that are more than grapefruit and tropical fruit. And there's weird, funky things going on in some yeah. of those hops and some of these, some of these beers when you're hopping at these ridiculous levels. And, um, I, and another fascinating thing I see, I'm like, now I'm going to defend hazy. This is a Socratic <laughs> method. See, we're like, now I'm defending hazy IPAs. Well, this is sort uh, of what I'm trying to lure you into. So I'm, I'm glad, yeah. you know, I didn't want to have to ask you directly, but yeah, this, and this is also what you and I do. You know, we're, we're happy to go on either sides of these things. We see beauty in, in every beer, even if it's not necessarily the one we want in our glass in front of us at, at any right. given moment, but yes, please give me the defense of hazy IPA. So I don't like it. I don't like cloying beers full stop. Um, I don't like hot burn. It's, it's, it's gross. Don't do it. Um, but one thing I have really enjoyed is some of the double and triple hazy IPAs. I feel like that is, um, that's the medium for this thing. Like just 
if you're gonna make it sweet and indulgent anyway just crank that shit up man like make it make it my bedtime beer or my dessert let's go like let's do it and um another thing i like about those stronger hazy ipas is and they the breweries don't want you to do this but they age really well and sometimes they get better Mm -hmm. five six months later you open it's like whoa this was not this good when it was fresh yeah i don't know why things just kind of come together and mellow mellow is in a a really cool way yeah yeah because a lot uh, of times you're drinking in it they're just so green or so fresh i mean i'm using fresh as a in a negative way here just it just and like you're saying with the burn it is some this is i guess my issue with hazes is and i have not I've spent so much time with them, but not enough to actually kind of break them into their own categories or, or understand what the 10 different levels of hazy are. But there are ones that will just sit in your chest, like the worst kind of heartburn you've ever had almost instantaneously. And there's onion and there's all these other different ones. And so I've always been trying to figure out like, where is the, you know, you never know what you're going to get with them, which I guess is sometimes a little bit fun until they don't tell you that there's lactose in this one and it's actually a smoothie beer. Oh yeah. Vanilla is badly overused to the, even it's just in everything now. I don't know how that happened. So we've been in hazies for years now. Um, things maybe got a little quiet for innovation in the last two years. Things have been some, some stuff's been going on. So as we get back at it, there every five or 10 years, there seems to be this discussion that loggers are finally going to have their day. Uh, and this time, I think we, I think the people who are behind lager beer now, sort of the, some of the younger Gen Z generation folks, more of an Instagram crowd have realized that it might've been a branding problem that we had with lager. And so now hmm. we don't really call it lager, but we tell that we just deem them as like crispy boys like crispy beers. <laughs> and we're just like, once you do that, suddenly they're on Instagram. People are like, yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm a crispy kid. I got my crispy beer. And you're like, this is all it was. It was a branding issue. So like in your mind, is this now the time for lager? Has lager's time finally come? Uh, yes. And um, it's not just wishful thinking. I, 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 if you talk to, uh, no, it's not every brewery. Every brewery's got a different situation. But a lot of them are selling lager, plenty of lager right now. And it's not necessarily in the same way that they're selling IPA. Like they'll put a new hazy IPA out and it's gone, you know, next week or the week, you know, and the, and the, the Pilsner is steady. But um, one example I'm thinking of right now is the Alma Mater Brewery in Kansas City. Um, they're making some fantastic lagers and some really delicious uh, IPAs. And there's a crowd that comes in for those hazy IPAs. And there's a crowd that comes in for the lagers. And there's not a ton of overlap between those crowds. Um, but the package beer, the IPA is the winner. Draft beer in the tap room, the lager is easily the winner. So I think that's really interesting. And, and um, there's a lot of breweries are selling more lager right now. And that's, all, that's what it takes. So whether it's going to be the same because everything is so packaged heavy right now um, and you need the pretty cans and, and you gotta, you gotta make new hazy IPAs all the time. Um, the loggers don't fit neatly into that program necessarily. Um, but when I think when draft beer really is back, I think we're going to see more 
more of the kind of choices we like to see when we see a tap list, where there's going to be a Pilsner more often than there used to be for sure. And that's really kind of a crazy thing. It's happened maybe in the last, like you're saying, in the last five years or so, because before it used to be, you'd go to a beer festival, you know, you go to one of the beer advocate, big extreme beer festivals, and it'd just be a lot of brutal beers. You know, in the early days, it would be crazy hop beers, um, you know, high alcohol levels, you know, then barrels and what have you. But eventually you got to a point, you know, seven or so years ago where a lot of brewers would have underneath their table, you know, the cans of Pilsner that they, you know, that they also, they make, but only, you know, that's what they're drinking at the fest or what their friends are coming by to get. And once you found the guy who had the Pilsner, that's where you would, you keep coming back to like every third glass to like reset your palate, you know, nice 5%, four and a half percent pills. And then it just started, this is the beer that the brewers like to drink. So do you think that this is a consumer pull? Do you think consumers like myself who getting a little bit older have been at craft beer a while, I drink almost exclusively by alcohol levels. You know, when I'm, you know, in the limited times or whether it's being a parent and, you know, my brother who has two kids gave me advice very early on and said, never, never, never parent hungover. And I did it once. I don't plan to ever do it again as best I can, best I can avoid it. So I am somebody who routinely is enamored with lower alcohol beers uh, and, and routinely will not really drink much over 5%. Um, that for a long time was a really difficult thing to do. You maybe could, you know, you're drinking a lot of Guinness at that point. Um, cause you'd not, you don't want a seven and a half percent regular, you know, hazy IPA. Not anymore. That's you go into places where you would never expect to see lager beer and it's suddenly being taken, you know, just a lot more seriously. And do you think that's the consumer pulling or do you think that's the brewers pushing? Um, I think the, the brewers pushing is not the worst form of marketing, um, mm-hmm. to, to put, you know, to put out there, you know, this is our IPA that scored a, whatever, an untapped. And this is our pastry stout that tastes like what your grandma used to make. These are different types of marketing. And then there's, but this is the beer, the brewer likes to drink. Yep. That's also a pretty effective kind of marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also thinking about the, you know, the crispy boys thing or the, hashtag um and i've i've always thought that a crystal clear beer is a beautiful thing to see on instagram and and that also is pretty good marketing and with good foam on it and things and and, um uh i was i also understand why the iceman pours of hazy you know thickly hazy sort of like brightly colored things also because they're striking to look at mm-hmm. um but i think that we can use that because there's something really refreshing about seeing more classic looking beer with proper foam on it and that's also i think effective marketing i, w- I would think it works on me yeah it works on me and works on anytime i'm in a beer garden or anything like that especially like i i remember going to one of the local beer gardens here a couple of years ago you know hazy hazy producer and you, you beautiful beer garden downtown Boston, sun shining, and it would hit you know the the pints of beer that people would have, you know the hazy pints, and the sun would it would just the die, you know the no light would pass through it, it just would hit it, and it was like just hitting a you know dark surface, it would go away. Versus like when you know, a half liter of Hellas goes by, that's that's something that maybe it just turns you know, our heads, but I, I agree, I think that there's, I think 
Instagram's going to take a hard turn from from the Iceman's and the and the Hazies. We're going to get into. I think it's. I think it's. I think it may finally be Logger's turn to to shine, but we'll see. We'll see. How much um, how much education does it take to get people to appreciate stripes of lace going down a glass? Because that's hot. It really, I do like that. This is both of us just think, take one look at that. And I'm just like, wow, that's, that's good content right there. That's, that's what I like to, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's a combination of so many things to make that happen. Like you, obviously you need the the recipe and the technique there for the beer, but you also need the clean glass. Yeah. Which is, you know, no, it's, it's, it's all that has to happen just right. You just you, there are so many different things that have to go right for that to for that to actually work, and it often does not. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Germany and your time there. Um, you were there during some interesting times, and I know you've written written about it, you know, for a variety of publications. But one of the things I was going back through a GBH article you wrote about Stone and Berlin. What was you know Stone is this brewery that you know, is so influential in the history probably of craft brewing, even globally, as it's exported its ethos and its and its and its sort of mantras to to places abroad like Brewdog, which is, you know, largely just followed that that model to a T and then took its own took its own paths. But um, certainly was, you know, Greg Cook and, and Stone were very influential here in the States, but then decided that they wanted to try that hand abroad. What happened with Stone and Berlin and what are the long lasting impacts, if any, that Stone had on, on German and, and, and continental European uh, beer scenes? Um, yeah, I think, well, Stone, there was a lot of hubris there with what Stone thought it was going to accomplish and maybe given where, um, where the market was when they set out to do it maybe that wasn't didn't seem so crazy at the time um but the couple of problems that they had um that with construction costs and things that was another whole other boondoggle there such a cool place i I mean and it's still there it's now a brew dog brewery um and i haven't been there since it became a brew dog place but i think it'd be quite quite still quite cool it's such a cool location um but the the price is one thing um and remember it wasn't it was never going to be a stone brewery for germany it was always going to be stone brewery for europe and to be able to brew beer uh fresh for europe and get it to these european countries and they did and and they still do it's still the brew dog brewery i believe is now brewing the stone beers there um so the extent to which I think they thought that would catch fire, or I'm not sure what, what they thought would happen. I think, um, you know, the, the classic arrogant bastards thing, I mean, um, they had a lot, maybe they had a lot more competition than they thought. Um, certainly there is, a, there is a lot of rather good uh, American style or international style craft beer being brewed in Europe at a lower price than what Stone wanted to sell their beer at. Yeah. Um, and um cans were another thing they really wanted to go with cans and and that wasn't that was a a hard sell at first by the time they were uh getting out of the berlin brewery cans were catching on so i think they had a big impact there um they probably did lift prices i mean 
have to think probably that there's that effect to some degree. Some people would see, you know, what they could get away with and try to price a little higher. It could be. Um, but I, and I do think that there's a, something to be said for the personality of Greg Cook. And um, he is, for whatever, uh, however he comes across his public persona, uh, privately, he's very likable, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. And he and he was in Berlin. He was you could see him around town, and that was pretty cool. He'd ride his bike around, and you'd see him at bars. And and a lot of people in town knew him, and that was about the best marketing Stone could have asked for. Yeah, have Greg Cook hanging around town and and uh, being friendly. And um, so there's that impact too that a lot of brewers even now will say that the the influence that stone and, and greg had on had on them so that's that's pretty interesting um but in the end like there was already so much going on in europe i don't know that that they could have had as much uh certainly there's been way more media coverage of it than actual influence maybe yep. i'll leave it at that i cannot recommend arrived enough killer customer support affordable Ability to start tabs without holding cards. Keeps track of ounces sold for state reporting. Two different ways to report tips. The list goes on. It's amazing, says Tracy Bardigan of Firemaker Brewing in Atlanta. While you were in Germany, one of the things, one of the projects you were involved with was creating one of my favorite podcasts. And that was uh, One More Road for the Beer with your buddy, Zach, another beer writer. I am very sad that series ended, ended because I don't, you know, frankly, maybe this is an admission I shouldn't make. I don't listen to a ton of content about beer, a ton of beer podcasts. Um, oftentimes they go on, you know, way too long. They're not edited. It just, you know, a couple of, you know, folks chatting, you know, maybe I'm describing essentially this podcast at the moment, which is not great, <laughs> I suppose, but you know, I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll edit this. I'm going to do some editing, uh, but it just, it, it was almost, I don't even know I would call it service journalism, but almost like it was helping people. It was providing, you know, travel is one of those, the great things about beer and it's the ability to experience it in its place, understand its tradition and its origin, but also to experience the other people who are enjoying it as well. Um, and, and sort of commiserating with them. And to hear the two of you talk about some of your favorite places and just the ease of the style, it's a podcast I miss. Uh, any chances that you're going to be able to to get that back and going? Because, you know, I, I, I'm i sure talking to brewers or what have you would be perfectly fine for an interview. But like, this is a great podcast. Like, how did that come to be? Thank you. That's really cool to hear. Um, we, as far as I didn't know, as far as I know, we never really had much of a following. So occasionally will somebody will no really somebody will say like, Hey, that podcast is awesome. What are you going to do more? It's like, oh, really? That's cool. Because we, <laughs> uh, I don't know how we're going to do that. Didn't really, didn't really. Yeah. Um, but we, we both want to do it, um, do more of them. And um, it's a question of when. Um, probably I'm most at fault right now because I work, I'm working a lot. And yeah. uh, I just need, I, it's this thing I would need to make time for. It wouldn't really be that much time um, to make it work. It just takes maybe a little motivation and, planning but um it would w- what we talked about doing was a second season that would be all u.s cities um zach is also rather well traveled so that was 
between the two of us, we were kind of able to make it work. Like mm-hmm. l- some places we'd both been to, some places he'd been to, other places I'd been to. So we could probably get together another season. And then by that time, who knows, maybe we'd be able to do more world cities or something. I don't know. But it was really, f- how did it come about? I don't remember. Um, we had talked for maybe a, a year or two about uh, starting a podcast of some kind. Um, we So we were in the same Stammtisch in Berlin. Um, that was a re- good group. We had also Andreas Krenmer, who's mm-hmm. like, writes the books on Austrian beer and brewery. Yeah. And he's, like the, he's like Vienna Lager, man. He's awesome. Dave Carpenter, who's the editor-in-chief of Zymergy and like it was a bunch of nerds man yeah some people who weren't nerds and just had to tolerate us talking all the time about (laughs) beer um anyways that we um it was at a stamtish where it's like I was like yeah we should do that yeah we should do that and then eventually like okay well actually now we have to do it um so then it was like if we're going to do this it's got to be not long it has to be tight we got to go into a plan and it has to be useful um so that was that was the idea so we would plan it out in advance talk about the places that that we wanted to go to in each city um sort of like your what are those 72 hours articles yep. the new york times does yep you know like was like if you, these are the highlights you know we, we'd love to go deeper but this is these are the places you want to hit and i loved the idea that there could be people who would never be able to go to those cities, but would listen to the podcast and think, wow, that sounds awesome. I hope I can go someday. That was our goal really. Yeah. And I think you, I think you guys achieved it. And I think one of the things, you know, maybe doing a podcast like that 10 or 15 years ago, you would feel the need to be comprehensive because the beer scenes in most places were less developed than they are now. And so you could reasonably thinking visit all most of the great beer places in maybe Berlin or someplace, you know, that may not be a great example, but in, in some of these places versus now you almost anywhere you go, I don't care if it's Columbus, Ohio, or St. Petersburg, Florida, or wherever you're never going to be able to hit everything that's available anymore. So curating or just picking and choosing not even the, just the best, but just some of the interesting places I think is a, is a great idea and, and, and for a podcast and especially about beer. And I'd love to see people do more content about this. We started kind of circling back to my initial questions about whether there's any kind of consumer market for this kind of content. And I feel like to the extent there is, it's maybe in this more servicey style where you're telling people, here's a curated look at Charlotte, you know, North Carolina, or if you're going to be down in Savannah, Georgia, or up in Boston, or in Warsaw, or Shanghai, wherever you may be, here is, here's something to get you started. Whereas, you know, the Beer Advocate website used to have, you know, the city lists, and that was, you know, and, and I know that Unta- or, um, Rate Beer had its own city list, basically. But the, it's yeah. just the humanizing and just to hearing your guys' stories about, you know, drinking and your connections to these establishments. And Zach's also just kind of got this nice, quiet bo- radio voice that he does. Like it was, it was a good show. I miss it. So I would a hundred percent get behind any kind of a Kickstarter or Patreon for season two to buy you guys, buy you guys some beers to hear you talk about St. Louis or Denver or Portland, Oregon, or anything along those lines. That's we had, I hadn't really thought about asking for money, but that's not a terrible idea. I'm yeah. Do, there you go. I would do that. Uh, sort of winding down here, you know, we talked about 
a lot of different topics. And, and frankly, one of the ones that we haven't talked about, I'm not sure we even need to, is, is one that you and I have probably discussed more than any other over the years, which is uh, the area of beer writing and ethics. And I think you and I, you know, over the years have been, con- you know, both of us come from a trained journalism background. And, you know, I was, you know, have a degree in journalism as you do. No, not from the, you know, not from Mizzou, you know, you know, we'll put that out there. But uh, I, I did not have the sort of the hard news background that you went into. I went into more magazine freelance journalism, which is what I continue to do to this day. But we both have had kind of concerns. This is a kind of can be a loosey goosey industry sometimes. And it's not at arm's length. And, you know, it is a, a you know, beer is a social beverage and it's one that brings people together. And, you know, you will rub shoulders and elbows and clink glasses a lot of the time with people that you're covering. Um, and trying to balance that versus issues of paid trips or people sending samples. Over the years, you know, we have we've had some concerns about how beer writing was done. Um, do we think those concerns still have a place today in the modern media landscape and a place where, you know, it's not the maybe traditional gatekeepers of, of beer writers, you know, who frankly oftentimes looked and sounded just like you and I do. Um, but we've now moved into a almost a freer, more open world where we have, you know, social media is endless in terms of how it provides. And it is probably the primary driver of beer information today, in my experience. It just, that's the way people will get their beer content. And we see influencers there having relationships that are not always disclosed. And, and you really almost have to be in the know to spot it. And maybe it matters and maybe it doesn't. But you know, where do you think ethics, you know, do they still have, is there still a debate worth having here? Or is it just about disclosure, transparency, and and this is an issue of the past? Um, I can't remember the last time I got really worked up about, yeah. about an issue or some transgression. Um, it may be that I just don't don't care anymore what other people do. Um but um, with ethics, it's really tricky. It's it's very easy to fall into being sanctimonious and, yeah. and um, getting into right or wrong, good and evil. And and um, they're actually that is part of it. We we want to tell the truth, so that is a right or wrong, good or evil thing. Truth is to me the ultimate good. So um, as a consumer journalist, being useful is there too. Um, so. To me, why do we have ethics? It's not just so you're a good guy and not a bad guy. You have the white hat instead of the black hat. It's it, you're actually credibility is our currency. Yep. So it's part of how we um, how we it's literally how we sell ourselves. Um, that is a product. We want a credible product. So that is where ethics really come in. You want to not just be a professional, but look like a professional. And that there's a lot of ways to communicate that in one way. And I think the most important way is to be as transparent as possible about everything. Uh, so if somebody paid you to take a trip somewhere, say it. Um, it doesn't hurt you to say it. It actually makes you look good to right. say it, believe it or not. Um, and then, so that's, that's, you know, that's like the classic example is junkets. Right. But then you get into, um, um brewery sending you beer i think that's maybe the one like, like the most common thing for yep. beer writers because 
a lot of breweries want to send us beer. It was very easy for me sitting in Brussels or Berlin or, or San Jose, Costa Rica to say, yeah, I don't take, I don't take free beer because <laughs> nobody was going to mail it to me there anyway. Yeah. So that was no, not a, you know, but um, working for a, uh, a brewing magazine where we do beer reviews uh, and I, you know, we have editors picks where we're picking out um, things that we think are the best of a particular style, for example. Um, I need to be able to try as many different beers as possible. So I've become sort of more comfortable in a critic's role, I guess. And yes, realistically, I am not going to be able to buy all those beers myself, especially given that the brewing scene has become more and more local, more than 9,000 breweries. You're just not, I'm not going to go to your town and ever come across your beer. So um, you are going to have to send it to me. Uh, so I, I think that there's, as long as we are pretty clear about that, um, I think that that's perfectly fine. I think um, the, that's for the magazine work, right? If I were going to post on my blog, my own blog about a beer right now, which I don't have a lot of time to do, but um, it would be a beer that I paid for myself. And I would say so. I would not do that about a beer that somebody sent me. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's a different set of transparencies, I guess. I don't know. Um, with the magazine, it's clear that people are sending us beer. I think yeah. it's clear to the readers. Yep. People are sending us beer. Um, and with the reviews as well, you know, that's, you know, but um, for me personally, it's different. So and the pandemic put some of this in perspective too, because we couldn't go anywhere. Right. So it's like, I, it is part of my job to know the brewing scene as well as I can possibly know it, given that how many ridiculous, you know, number of breweries and beers there are. So um, the, the more beers I can taste, it makes me better as a critic, as a writer, as somebody who's writing about brewing, um, not only to know what temperature you mashed at, fermented at, and everything else, but also I want to taste that. So I know how that, you know, yeah. what the result of that is. So I, I don't know, there's um, maybe get going off on the tangent there about, about getting free beer, but I think it's, if you're a beer writer, you should totally get free beer. Not don't go in anywhere and ever demand it ever. Right. Don't right. do that. Don't that's, that's the opposite of credibility. Go in and always try to pay for your beer. Always. Um, don't walk out of there with a 12 pack under your arms. It's not a good look, but if they want you to taste stuff, that's the same hospitality they're going to offer. Anybody else who's going on a brewery tour, taste some yep. stuff. Um, I don't know. No, if we, I think we, I, I just don't get it quite as worked up about the, the stuff as I used to. I don't see, uh, I, I, I think that maybe the guild has a pot, had a positive effect too, mm-hmm. to some degree that, that, um, the North American guild of beer writers for people who don't, who don't know there's, it's a real thing. And it's, and Brian Roth is doing an awesome job of, yep. of, uh, of developing it. And, and, um, there's, I think, even though we've lost a lot of beer, beer specific media outlets that in a lot of ways, the quality has gone up of yeah. writing and, 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 um, um, yeah, I don't know, but there's still, you know, a lot of lazy stuff out there, of course. <laughs> to sort of end here, if you weren't working as a beer writer, what would you be doing? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I inevitably think a lot about, could I be a brewer? Um, because I'm, I just love drinking beer and I'm fascinated by the whole process of 
tinkering and um, uh, turning the dial a little bit on the next batch and seeing if that makes a difference. And uh, as a home brewer, it's pretty, I'm a pretty, I almost said shitty. I'm pretty, let's say mediocre home brewer. Um, <laughs> pretty shitty home brewer sometimes. Um, Cause like you brewing once a month, you're never going to be able to really like dial those things in. Um, so, so that's something I think about a lot, but um, also I'm a writer. That's who I am. It's like in my fiber. Uh, uh, I think I would probably be a news reporter still or a travel writer. Maybe um, if, if I could, you know, get paid for that um, or um, could just uh, join the state department to be a diplomat. You know, yeah. I think that's pretty cool. We've traveled overseas and kind of seen that enough that like, I think I'd be pretty good at that too. I, I, I like would when, enjoy it, but I like when I ask writers, now. writers about what else they'd like to do. And inevitably it's like, well, I'd like to do a different type of writing. <laughs> there's just nothing more core to like somebody that's I'm a writer. It's my identity. It's what I do. I feel it internally. So you're, yeah, I don't have to do a beer writing. I could write about art or travel or other. You're like, no, you, you're not a painter. You're not, you're not deciding to like become an architect or a carpenter. I'll, I'll do some more writing. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing I fantasize about a lot is running a little pub, a small one, you know, like a micro pub mm-hmm. of, of some kind and, uh, but making it very much an expression of my taste and personality and what way I think a perfect pub ought to be. Um, I don't, wouldn't love the hours I'm sure. Um, or having employees or any of that stuff. But, hey, we, but, uh, you, you've been to plenty of places where there are crazy, there's one place in Belgium and this, you are the person to ask with the, the way I'm going to say this, there is some place that is cluttered, and I don't remember which town it's in. It's cluttered. It's filled with crap and it's hours are totally off there was no no telling what hours and i think they maybe had two beers available do you know which place i'm talking about yeah that's a place in ghent um <laughs> this uh, is why jo- this yeah, is why name- joe joe is the perfect guest for this yeah no the name the name of it escapes me right now that dude is is like certifiably not mentally well yeah um, that was a it was a crazy place but you know that there are places maybe a little bit not as crazy as that where you can kind of set your own hours because I, I would drink in that bar yeah that's and you see that in the uh the british micropub scene there's definitely like people where it's not their day job you know yeah. they're doing it on even, evenings weekends or whatever or, or uh and there's plenty of cafes in belgium too where they're closed on weekends because they're out cycling or whatever so um yeah you can do that but um i don't know maybe that's a retirement retirement project well, wherever you do it, I will come and meet you and have some beers with you. And Joe, thank you as always. I, I love talking to you. It's been far too long. We've gotten to do it in some cities around the world and, and hopefully sometime in Asia soon. That would be awesome. It was great talking. It was really fun. But it's nice to talk about myself for a change to ask everybody <laughs> else a bunch of questions. I love talking about myself. This is great. This has been Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our dear listeners. And this is where I ask you to give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a shirt or a mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen on your commute or if you just need to take a break. 
We're on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor the show, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com, and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrive consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff efficiency, and bottom line. Chances are a switch to Arrived will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's Arrived with a Y. A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com. Arrived is the point of service that works for you.